Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 14, The English Ulcer. Welcome back, folks, and thank you again for being just so patient with me in my move across the U.S. I'm happy to announce that my wife and I are now firmly settled in our new home, and perhaps the best news of all for you all is that now I can start to have a consistent schedule in putting these episodes out. My goal is to have a new episode out every Monday moving forward, and or perhaps Tuesday, depending on where you are in the world, with a break or two here in between, depending on my work schedule and, of course, with the holidays coming up here in December. However, as a holiday present to you all, our Titans of History website will be launching by the new year, and with it, plenty of graphics so that you can all have a visual representation of many of the events, places, and campaigns we have, we are, and we will embark on over the rest of this series and beyond. And if you like all the content that I'm putting out, I'm also going to include my Patreon link in the website if you'd like to make a donation so that I can keep putting these episodes out for the foreseeable future and hopefully in a quicker fashion. It's a hobby and a passion of mine at the moment, but who knows? With your help, maybe we can make it a full-time in the distant future. So, with all that said, finally, let's get back to Napoleon. We left off last episode with the ratification of the Treaty of Campo Formio by both the French and the Austrians, officially ending the War of the First Coalition and confirming Napoleon's place among the best military commanders in Europe. He guarded the respect, if not disdain, of his Austrian enemies, but his popularity back home had never been higher. And after a long, grueling, and at times tenuous campaign in northern Italy and in Austria, Napoleon was on his way back to Paris, victorious in nearly every sense of the word. He left for the French capital on December 2nd, 1797 from Milan and reached the city three days later. It was recorded that Napoleon donned civilian clothes and arrived in undistinguished carriage, wanting to avoid being noticed by the masses as he understood the news of his arrival would create great fanfare. It was Napoleon's goal to keep a low profile while back in Paris, knowing that his popularity would create a major problem for the directory. It was well known that there were numerous people throughout France that wanted to make the young general a director a dictator, or, gasp, a king. Indeed, when a few French soldiers recognized Napoleon walking in the streets of Paris, they shouted that he, quote, should be king. Because of this, Napoleon went to great lengths to not meddle in the political situation of France while he was in Paris, not wanting to upset the directory, but also because he feared that he would be the victim of assassination by those who feared of a royalist coup by, ironically, Napoleon, and make himself king. He made few public appearances, spoke only with those in his inner circle, and was quick to cut off any conversations that even hinted at overthrowing the directory. Now, these decisions can be read a few different ways. One, he was likely exhausted from such an arduous campaign in Italy and getting thrust into a political situation right as he returned to France 
likely wasn't as appealing to Napoleon as it probably was a few months prior. Two, even if he was scheming something in his head, he wanted to play it extremely close to the vest, which he was always one to do anyway, because there wasn't really a plethora of people on the political scene he could trust back in France. And then three, and this is my personal take on it, the timing just wasn't right. He didn't have the entrenched network he needed to pull off something so brash so soon. And as we mentioned with point one, he likely just didn't have the energy to pull it off right at this moment. But that moment would come, I assure you. And oh boy, would it come. But even if he didn't want to overthrow the directory, it was hard to not state the obvious. The people adored Napoleon. As one Englishman living in Paris wrote at the time, quote, as he passed through the crowded streets, he leaned back in his carriage. I saw him decline, placing himself in the chair of state, which had been prepared, and seemed as if he wished to escape from the general bursts of applause. Now, I doubt he did so because of stage fright. He knew that they were not only cheering for him, Napoleon, they were cheering for him, Napoleon, their savior. On December 6th, Napoleon met with Talleyrand for the first time in person at the foreign ministry at the Hotel Galefe on the Rue de Bac. Now, I wish I were a fly on the wall at that first meeting, these two soon-to-be giants eyeing each other up, trying to see what their weaknesses were. But by all accounts, they liked what they saw, and Napoleon left the meeting for a state dinner with a directory where he was received warmly, if disingenuously, by its members. They, too, had heard the loud cheers from the crowd from the victorious general, and they were cautious to bestow much praise on him, knowing that doing so would have compromised their own standing with the people. Napoleon, again, understanding the situation both he and the directory were in, played his part well. It was one of his better skills as a politician, being entrenched firmly in the spotlight while also seemingly trying to move himself away from it, a sort of masterclass in the art of internal real politique, if you will. Four days later, on December 10th, Napoleon would officially be welcomed home in a lavish midnight ceremony at the Luxembourg Palace, which was adorned with tricolor flags and specifically made amphitheater featuring statues representing liberty, equality, and peace. All of the Parisian high society attended, including both chambers of the assembly and all five of the directors. In a surreal scene, women stacked on top one another to get a glimpse of the man through the palace windows while onlookers flooded the gates to just catch a glimpse of the man who had now saved the revolution. Talleyrand began the ceremony by introducing Napoleon with an adulatory speech, and then Napoleon spoke briefly, praising the bravery of his soldiers, and that when France were stable in her laws, the rest of Europe would be free. Director Paul Barat then spoke and compared Napoleon to the likes of Socrates, Pompey, and Caesar, and then quickly turned his attention to admonishing the British, who, to this point, had rid the world's oceans of any French influence at sea. Quote, Go and capture that gigantic corsair who infests the seas, he demanded. Go and chastise in London outrages left too long unpunished. They, like Napoleon, had turned their attention away from Austria and squarely across the channel to the idle Brits, forever lurking in the background while they paid the rest of Europe to fight her eternal enemy for her. But Napoleon and France wouldn't be at war with Britain yet. And while there was still peace settling over Europe, just in time for Christmas, by the way, we get one of the more, how shall I put it, unflattering side stories of Napoleon's awkwardness with women. On Christmas Day, Napoleon was elected as a member of the Institut de France, the foremost intellectual society in the country, which it still remains to this day. 
Napoleon had remarked at the time that it was one of the happier days of his young life. He had always tried to surround himself with the leading intellectuals of his era and admired the many young rising stars in Europe at the time, including Goethe, Lord Byron, Carlyle, Hegel, and a personal admirer of his, at least initially, Ludwig von Beethoven. At a banquet in his honor on January 3rd, 1798, Napoleon was followed around constantly by one of the leading socialite intellectuals of the day, Madame Germaine de Stahl, daughter of former finance minister Jacques Necker. Remember from all the way back in episodes two and three how important he was. De Stahl greatly admired the young general and believed him to be a savior for the republic as well as a reformer for woman's place in society. To her shock, however, when she finally had the chance to speak with Napoleon in person, she asked him, quote, Whom do you consider the best kind of woman? Likely expecting some sort of compliment, Napoleon retorted, quote, She who has had the most children. Now, while the remark was likely made to shoo away to stall, it did convey a great bit about how Napoleon would come to view a woman's role in society in France in the following decades. And as he approached his nearing absolute power, Napoleon knew it would be important to grow a French population, which, in 1798, had been in numerical decline for the previous few decades. Nevertheless, the meeting became a harbinger of things to come between de Stal and Napoleon, and she would become a leading critic of the man she had once considered a near deity. Indeed, many historians see Stahl as one of the first individuals to truly see the type of tyrannical man Napoleon would come to be. Anyway, with one of the more notorious Napoleonic female anecdotes out of the way, let's refocus our attention towards the British, because that's exactly what the directory were doing at this moment. With economic conditions such as they were at the start of 1798, and with the British control of the Atlantic and Mediterranean waters a great reason for this, the French position was such that if they did not act, the British would likely starve the French economy into complete ruin. There was a brokered peace in Europe, yes, but the British, still persistent in their goal to reinstate the Bourbon throne, continued a sort of undeclared naval and economic warfare against French vessels, especially against her colonies in the Americas. And with the Haitian Revolution providing an ample ulcer to the French sugar trade in the Caribbean, the British used this in their superior navy to force France into the precarious position of needing to act, lest yet another uprising begin in France. So, the Directory turned to Napoleon on what the best routes of success would be, and he turned his eyes to the invasion of the British Isles. Now, Britain wasn't free from her own internal strife at this point in history, and they had always had their own bleeding ulcer in the name of Ireland. As I'm sure many of us know, British rule in Ireland spanned several centuries up to this point, almost all of them incredibly unpopular with the local population, most of whom, as I'm sure you're also well aware, were Catholic, who led minor and major insurrections to protest the growing British influence there. Now, this would reach a boiling point in the 16th century, when the British began the policy of the Ulster plantations, moving English and Scottish Protestants into Ulster, the nine counties in the north of the island of Ireland, six of whom make up the modern-day country of Northern Ireland. Did we all follow that? Great. Anyway, the purpose of this was to essentially replace the Catholic population with Protestants over generations, and it included stripping Catholics of their rights to property, voting, and, basically, citizenship. They were barred from the government, and thus had no say in the laws governing their country, and they were treated as second-class citizens for centuries leading up to where we are in our story. Now, we don't have time to get into all the nuances of the Irish fight for home rule over their numerous incursions with the British troops stationed throughout the Isles, but suffice it to say, as the 18th century came to a close, 
many Irishmen, both Catholic and Protestants, mainly Presbyterians, began to form political clubs calling for more autonomy in Ireland, as well as for rights for actual Irish people. Inspired mainly by the American and French revolutions, the largest of these clubs was the Society of United Irishmen, which called to end British rule on the island. They would lead to the famous Irish Rebellion of 1798 that May, but for the purposes of our story, one of their main leaders was one Wolf Tone, who helped create the clubs in Belfast and Dublin, two of the hotbeds for Irish home rule in 1798, then, well, for the next 130 years or so. So you can see why the British were so keen to stamp out the French at all costs and their influence throughout Europe. Anyway, Tone, greatly inspired by the French Revolution, consulted Napoleon on plans to invade the British Isles. Now, by Tone's own account, he wasn't a military man, but Napoleon greatly valued his input for the purposes of intelligence gathering, vulnerable points on the British coast, and potential allies in Ireland should they choose to go ahead with any future invasion. But whatever plans of grandeur, see delusions, that the French had of repeating the Norman conquests, Napoleon put the kibosh on them. Visiting the key coastal towns of Calais, Dunkirk, Boulogne, and Ostend, Napoleon surmised that any attempted invasion would take years. Aside from the obvious logistical planning such an undertaking would require, the lack of adequate ships necessary to combat the formidable ships that align the British possessed was, well, substantial. Quote, It's too hazardous. I will not attempt it, he concluded in his report to the directory. Whatever efforts we make, we shall not for some years gain naval supremacy. To invade England without that supremacy is the most daring and difficult task ever undertaken. Thus, after two months of scouting, planning, and collaboration with his spy network, Napoleon decided to approach a conflict with Britain from a different angle. If they could not confront the British Navy directly, they could disrupt her trade network of vital resources from the east, namely India. He explained his thinking in his report to the Directory as such. Quote, If, having regard to the present organization of our Navy, it seems impossible to gain the necessary promptness of execution, then we must really give up the expedition against England, be satisfied with keeping up the pretense of it, and concentrate all of our attention and resources on the Rhine in order to try and deprive England of Hanover, of which their current ruling dynasty was from, or else undertake an eastern expedition which would menace her trade with the Indies. If none of these three operations is practicable, I see nothing else for it but to conclude peace. With a directory suffering mightily from Britain's stranglehold on her trade network in no position to make peace, they decided on Napoleon's proposal to launch a land campaign to disrupt her eastern trade network. In March of 1798, they gave Napoleon full authority to prepare for a campaign in Egypt. It would be one of the most storied, controversial, and misunderstood, largely on his own doing, campaigns he would ever undertake. So, here we are. On to Egypt. For the Directory, their decision to go to Egypt was actually a win-win, at least in theory. On the one hand, Napoleon would succeed and provide yet another glorious victory to the regime while crippling British influence in Asia. On the other, he would fail, return to France in disgrace, and their position in power would likely be assured from any potential Napoleonic coup. In the words of British peer Lord Holland, quote, They sent him there partly to get rid of him, partly to gratify him, and partly to dazzle and delight that portion of Parisian society who had considerable influence on public opinion. But for Napoleon, 
This campaign was far more straightforward. It was the opportunity of a lifetime. He got to follow in the footsteps of his greatest heroes in Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar by embarking on a military campaign in Egypt. Furthermore, he wanted to go one step further and do what they could not, conquer India. As he told one of his private secretaries prior to the campaign, quote, Europe is but a molehill. All the great reputations have come from Asia. While the greater goal of the Egypt expedition was to establish a greater trade link between France and the East, it duly provided Napoleon an escape from Paris. In the less than six months he spent in the city after his return from Italy, he looked for every reason to get out. He couldn't stand the duplicitous nature of its leading figures, preaching liberty and equality while constantly bribing one another for their next position in higher power. He loathed the rampant corruption and the disloyalty to the values of the revolution it caused. Even his wife, Josephine, was not immune, having been discovered profiteering off of the taxpayer's dime through inside investments in the defense contractors the directory hired for many of their campaigns. Napoleon had always known that this type of insider trading was done with relative impunity from the directors like Barat, but to find out his wife was involved, well, this near contractor gate could have ended the Egyptian campaign before it even had a chance to get off the ground had it been made public knowledge. Adding further insult to injury, was that one of the other investors was our old friend, Hippolyte Charles, who was still lurking in the shadows, still cuckolding Napoleon, and still driving a major wedge between the rising general and his scandal-ridden wife. Egypt, it seemed, could not come fast enough. So, before we get into the campaign, let's provide some background on Egypt at the turn of the 19th century and why the choice was made to pivot east rather than focus on the British holdings in the Rhineland. Then, as now, Egypt was the crossroads to the rest of the world. Controlling it meant controlling the absolutely bonkers trade tariffs that passed through it with goods coming from China, India, and the rest of the Middle East and Europe. The Sinai Peninsula held a monopoly on transporting goods from ships coming from Asia, trekking them across the land bridge and back onto boats in the Mediterranean for further commerce back on the European mainland. And the political situation in Egypt in 1798 presented opportunities for all of the surrounding powers. Here's why. Egypt in 1798 was technically still under the rule of the Ottoman Empire, at least in theory. But in reality, the Mamluks, a military caste originally from Georgia, were the ones who maintained de facto control of the country. Interestingly, Egypt hadn't been ruled by actual Egyptians since before Alexander the Great conquered the region and installed the Ptolemaic dynasty under his companion, Ptolemy I, in 305 BC, and it wouldn't be ruled by Egyptians until after their independence from Britain in 1922, though they still held considerable influence there until the Republic of Egypt was formed in 1953. Essentially, Egypt wouldn't be ruled by Egyptians for over 2,000 years. Pretty insane. But in any event, after the Ottomans conquered Egypt in 1517, their oncoming decline, see our last episode to delve into that a little bit further, presented an opportunity for the entrenched Mamluks to, basically, seize control of the region and administer it as an autonomous province. Now, Egypt had always been difficult to administer anyway. The locals viewed the Turks and Mamluks with equal disdain, viewing them both as foreign invaders who imposed high taxes and did little to improve their daily lives, and thus skirmishes cropped up sporadically. And by the time the French were ready to launch their campaign, the conditions seemed ripe for the revolutionary picking, if you will. Indeed, the Directory believed that the Egyptian plight was similar to what the French had just endured, extending liberty to those oppressed by foreign tyrants. At least, that's what they thought to themselves. Because, in reality, the situation was far more clear. 
resource, and economic extraction. You see, Egypt was one of the ancient cradles of civilization for a reason. Its fertile Nile river basin and strategic location have always been at the forefront of conquering generals, and controlling the region typically translated into considerable wealth for those who ruled over it. Egypt was Rome's breadbasket, as I'm sure we all remember, but beyond the ability to grow food in a Mediterranean climate was the ability to use Egypt's location for the purposes of trade. Now, I already outlined the monopoly the Ottoman Turks had ferrying goods from Asia across the Sinai as well as through modern-day Turkey to awaiting traders in the Mediterranean and Europe. But by the 18th century, there were also other ideas to consider. Engineering ideas. Cutting a big old hole in the land and holding a waterway connecting the Mediterranean and the Indian Oceans via the Red Sea. Now, we call this the Suez Canal nowadays, but in the 18th century, they called it a double port and they knew how lucrative creating such a canal would be. All of this certainly wasn't lost on the French in 1798. In fact, the Directory and Napoleon were not the first French explorers, <clears throat> conquerors, to propose the colonization of Egypt. Military planners and cartographers had proposed such campaigns all the way back in the 1760s, following the Seven Years' War, as a way to offset French losses to the British, but, you know, money. It was again discussed in the 1770s after the French aristocrat François Baron de Tau undertook a secret mission to the Levant to determine its feasibility. And, in 1782, Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II, uncle to current Emperor Francis, had suggested to Louis XVI, his brother-in-law, that France annex the Levant as part of a wider coalition to further disintegrate the Ottoman Empire. But, again, money came into play, and Louis XVI had a few more uh, pressing issues he'd be dealing with back home in a few short years, so a major campaign in the Middle East was something that needed to be put on the back burner for now. But by 1798, all this chaos had passed, and Egypt presented the perfect opportunity for both France and for Napoleon. Make France's wallet bigger by annexing the region, while making Britain's wallet a little bit smaller. Egypt fever had also swept over France. Egyptian fashion was in full swing in the country, and many of the leading intellectuals of the day believed Egypt to be the cradle of Western civilization. What better way to preserve that cradle than by saving it from those marauding Ottoman and Mamluk heathens who currently ruled over it? Talleyrand, in a foreshadow for what's to come, had proposed to Napoleon prior to the campaign that he would go to Constantinople to personally persuade Ottoman Sultan Selim III to not actively oppose the expedition. Because, hey, if it's an expedition, it doesn't exactly sound like a military campaign now, does it? But, regardless, this was a lie. He did no such thing, and Napoleon would embark on the mission in full hostility of all the rivals of France. But his initial goal was to make sure none of those rivals knew what was to come. While Napoleon and the French high command knew of the campaign, the French military at large did not and the secrecy of the Egypt expedition was tantamount to national security, as they saw it. The French were keen to keep the British Navy out of any major offensives as long as possible, knowing that the French would be incapable of fighting Britain at sea, and keeping their movements secret were paramount to a successful campaign, especially since a certain Admiral Nelson was patrolling the waters in the Mediterranean. Napoleon, to continue the ruse, openly talked in salons in Paris about their plans to take Germany, and he was made commander of the Army of England to throw off any potential suspicions. Indeed, as soldiers and sailors, with numbers swelling over 50,000, began to gather in ports along the French Mediterranean coasts, rumors began to swirl about a potential campaign at sea, 
but none knew of the destination. Militarily, outside of Napoleon, the true destination for the men was only known to Generals Berthier and the one-legged Maximilian Caffarelli, as well as mathematician Gaspard Monge. But more on them in just a bit. Napoleon and the Directory, along with good old Talleyrand, had planned the invasion for two months before setting it into motion, with Napoleon using, quote, contributions, see extortion, from Rome, the Netherlands, and Switzerland to help fund the trip, which they had estimated would cost upwards of 8 million francs. Napoleon also took great care in selecting his top generals for the campaign, knowing the difficulties in desert warfare, complex social structures in Egypt, and formidable resistance from the enemy militaries would require the elite of the elite. And while we've met some of them from our previous campaigns in Italy, Berthier, Bessaret, and Marmont, just to name a few, there were also a few notable additions. He took his brother Louis as one of his aides-de-camp, along with his stepson Eugène as another. He also chose General Louis d'Arcy to accompany them after serving with distinction in the Rhine campaigns. Around Napoleon's age, d'Arcy had shown a similar rapid rise through the ranks, and his actions under Generals Jourdan and Moreau in saving lost battles made him almost well-known throughout France as Napoleon was. And while d'Arcy would go on to serve in Egypt with Napoleon, his biggest role in our story is who he would introduce to Napoleon to accompany them on the campaign as well. Another young nobleman general, Louis Nicole Davout. One year younger than Napoleon, Davout had likewise studied artillery at the École Militaire and, embracing the revolutionary ideals, was quickly promoted after showing promise while serving in the Rhine campaigns. We'll get into further detail about Davout as we delve into Napoleon's marshals, because, spoiler alert, Davout will be one of them and arguably his greatest marshal, but for now, remember his name because it will definitely be on the test. Leading his cavalry, Napoleon chose Haitian-born General Thomas Alexandre Dumas, father to Alexandre Dumas, the author of the acclaimed The Count of Monte Cristo. Dumas had served in Italy with Napoleon, and he was given the nickname The Black Devil by the Austrians when he fearlessly prevented them from crossing the Adige in January of 1797. The artillery would be commanded by General Elisard de Damontan, the quartermaster General Jean Lan, and the army of engineers led by Caffarelli. In short, his officer corps was composed of some of the greatest commanders who would later command armies in the Napoleonic Wars. An all-star squad, many of them becoming marshals in less than a decade. If Napoleon was to follow in the footsteps of Caesar and Alexander before him, he was going to do so with the best his army had to offer. In that vein, Napoleon also followed in their lead in bringing volumes of texts on religion, philosophy, geography, history, and military campaigns to help guide him through a completely different world from what he was accustomed to in Europe. He brought along scholars, botanists, chemists, antiquaries, engineers, historians, printers, astronomers, zoologists, journalists, economists, and more. Basically every ists there were, he brought them along. He wanted the campaign to also be an expedition. Not just in a euphemistic way, but in a literal one. There were treasures and discoveries to be made, and he knew that France uncovering them, see looting, plundering, and desecrating in the name of science, would greatly improve her international prestige. Some of the greatest learned men of the day would go along. They, like the soldiers, ignorant of their final destination, just knowing that they were needed by their country and that their stipends would be increased for the use of their services. And so, as May 1798 approached, Napoleon began to ready his men for the great crusade that they were to embark on. 
still calling them the Army of England. He compared them to the great Roman legions, but that they had yet to fight at sea, and they had yet to take on their Carthage. Quote, Europe is watching you. You have a great destiny to fulfill, battles to fight, dangers and hardships to overcome. You hold in your hands the future prosperity of France, the good of mankind, and your own glory. The ideal of liberty that has made the Republic the arbiter of Europe will also make it the arbiter of distant oceans, of faraway countries. He began to instill the courage in the men that they would need to win a campaign so far from France. He motivated them by promising them all land, by promising them wine, riches, and glory. And indeed, by now, Napoleon had become so famous that any supplies needed for his army were easily obtained. Such was his standing with the French people that just by saying something was needed for Bonaparte made it appear nearly overnight. And that was fortunate, because before the French were to set off for Egypt, they needed a good staging ground to offset the British naval threat and resupply in a heavily fortified port for their troops in Egypt. And there was no better place in all the Mediterranean than the little island fortress just off the coast of Sicily, Malta. Malta.